Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. And I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of a series on governing during pandemic. We're talking with local elected officials, public officials, and community activists to learn more about how local governments and organizations are responding and adapting to our shifting needs during this public health crisis. Casey, one of the things that I have been thinking about a ton is how do we even act in this and how does how do we make sense of the choices that the government is asking us to make? Does that make any sense to you? Do you know what I'm like? Yeah, no, like it's how, so how complicated. We, <laughs> how do we get back to where we were, right? I mean, how yes. how can we rely on and, and hope that government is helping us to guide us to get back to where we were? And that's a really difficult thing to do. And so, right, as we've been reopening, we've seen these uh, resurging cases where there are spikes uh, in Arizona and Florida, Texas, but even Ohio now is starting to uh, increase caseloads. So th- we know that when we were reopening, there were three things we were told are really important. The first is mask wearing. The sec- if you can't socially distance, or even if you can, wear a mask. The second thing is that we need to do a lot of testing, 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 testing. That's one of the things that people are talking about everywhere. Governor DeWine talks about this ad nauseum, right? Uh, And the third thing is that there has to be in place a really good system for contact tracing. And I think that there wasn't a great understanding of really of any of these three things, potentially testing, probably most people understood a great deal about, but we don't have a culture in in the U.S. and, And I think that this is something that's sets us apart from other countries that have successfully tackled uh, coronavirus of wearing masks. So we don't like to do it. And we, a lot of us refuse to do it. Um, uh, even though we know that it's something that's going to help us kind of squash uh, down the transmission of coronavirus. And the second thing is contact tracing and people don't have a great sense of what that is. And one of the things that started quite a bit of a debate was that there was going to be use of, or that in many countries they use geolocation data. And this is the idea that, right, your phone can give us a good sense of where you went. And so if you come up through testing as somebody that's positive, then we can understand the other people around you that may have contracted it from you because we can use your geolocation data to trace where you were. Um, And the problem is that people don't know a lot about what this geolocation data is, period, Um, to let alone then turn around and say, yes, I trust government public health uh, organizations to use this in contract tracing. Right. I mean, so much about governing during pandemic is about trusting what government is going to be doing, right? And that they're making decisions for the public good. Um, And so understanding what these things are, understanding the significance of wearing masks, understanding contact tracing is essential for us to be able to kind of really dig into what these trade-offs might be. And so I think that in this context, um, and for our guests this week, that's one of the things that we can start to do. Um, thinking about the con- thinking about contact tracing, but more specifically thinking about the trade-offs in how we use things like geolocation in particular, um, even outside of a public health crisis. Exactly.
Okay, joining us today is Scott Kelly, and he is a transportation geographer and professor at the University of Nevada at Reno. His research focuses on the spatial dimensions of the adoption and use of emerging transportation technologies and services. Currently, he's investigating how early adopters of hydrogen fuel cells vehicles use sparse refueling infrastructure, and this work has implications for future station planning. His work also evaluates how prospective users of automated and driverless vehicles consider travel with these technologies under certain conditions and the potential impacts that these decisions may have for cities and regions. Thank you for joining us, Scott. Thank you for having me. So we really appreciate you joining us today. I want to start by just asking you to tell us a little bit about your work. What is a transportation geographer and how did you come to study transportation sector from a perspective that focuses on spatial dimensions? Yeah, that's a great question. Great question. You know, it's interesting. I, I teach uh, a couple of GIS classes a year here at UNR, uh, University of Nevada, Reno. And I think a lot of the students are in those classes because they have this interest in, in getting into environmental sciences. I would say that probably two thirds, sometimes three quarters of my students in an 80 person class do. But then I say, but I'm a transport geographer. And they're like, uh-oh, uh, this guy's going to be talking about cars and bikes, not about animals. But uh <laughs> It, the, the thing that sort of ties it all together, though, is, is this uh, geolocation data, which I'll get to in a second. But transport geography is this discipline that's really interested in movement of people, information, of goods, freight, um, and, and kind of how that gets organized spatially. And so we're, we're often looking at origin destination flows, commuting patterns, uh, where residents decide to live, where employers decide to locate. And the implications of all of that very dynamic, you know, kind of all, a network-based approach in some ways, but also sort of the way this sort of plays itself out on the landscape and, and how that ultimately impacts the shape of our cities. And in fact, it was interesting logging into this and seeing that city map of, of Cleveland and, uh, and, and Reno, and they look very different. And, and the transportation network and the urban form linkages are incredibly important here. Um, and, and so... It, Anybody sort of studying anything in that realm uh, falls within the, the, the broad umbrella of transport geography. Personally, though, I got into this field because of an interest in energy transitions. I'm, I'm a rare three-degree geographer, meaning my bachelor's and my master's and my, and my doctorate are all in geography. And I got excited about a class that I took as an undergrad at the University of Wyoming called Introduction to Geographic Information Systems and Science. And this was a place that you could sort of work with geographic data uh, in a digital way to sort of see, visualize, assess um, all kinds of spatial phenomena and, and glean some really interesting insights from it. But of course, that's an, it's a useful tool and method, but ultimately my interest was in energy transitions. I think most of us are aware of some of the issues going on in that, in that realm. And, and I initially was sort of interested in power plants and, and and our fuel supply, those kind of things. Um, but I started looking into transportation as a result of some faculty I met when I got to Arizona State University to work on my master's degree. And I, I really got involved with this, this project that looked at alternative fuel vehicle adoption in California. I said, oh, okay, so it's electric vehicles, right? Well, no, not necessarily. That, of course, is a big component of it. But this particular project was looking at compressed natural gas drivers and kind of where they lived and where they refueled um, and what that meant for, okay, if we can understand these spatial patterns and processes and phenomena, what does that mean for informing policy to help other cities and regions sort of advance these other forms of, of travel? 
But of course, right away, you can tell that's a geographic problem. And of course, one of the big issues with trying to encourage widespread adoption or even people jumping into the game at all with alternative fuel vehicles is having a refueling infrastructure, whether that's uh, electric vehicles, compressed natural gas, hydrogen, no matter what, you need to go somewhere to get energy fuel uh, via an energy carrier, maybe to, to continue your travel, just like you do when you go to a gas station. And that infrastructure is a key component. So we need to know where people live, where they travel, where they want to travel, and where that station is or should be. And so immediately, that's a very geographic problem, well-suited to working in geographic information systems, or GIS. At any rate, there are all kinds of, of thoughts about you know, what models we should use, what plans we should use. And so that required the collection of spatial data um, in, in some way, shape, or form to sort of assess, okay, can we come up with plans uh, maybe even models to help inform station placement elsewhere. And of course, there were a host of them that had been proposed in literature really before, sometimes in some cases, before these technologies came along. And so the way we wanted to test this was to see, okay, let's figure out where these activity areas are. And there are a number of ways you can do it. And I think a lot of students, a lot of people uh, just out in the public think, okay, if I'm going to collect information about where people are traveling, what am I going to do? Tap into that location data. That, of course, carries a host of impacts, which we'll get to in a little bit. What we did was we took a survey-based approach um, for all kinds of reasons, um, privacy, costs, those sorts of things. And we actually ended up surveying people at uh, known compressed natural gas stations. And so uh, we asked approximate locations of home and travel destinations instead. And that's what allowed us to sort of not need to go tap into some of these other big data sets that are out there that we'll talk about shortly. But that's not to say I never have. Um, I, I took the plunge into that eventually as my research started turning into uh, bicycle commuting. And last two, two years ago, I was teaching a GIS class and there was a group of students and also a group on campus sort of interested in enabling bicycle commuting. I don't know what the situation is like on your campus. But in ours, there are no lanes, there are no signs, it's kind of scattershot. Uh, there are a few bike lanes here in town, but they don't connect very well with one another for all kinds of reasons outside the scope of this interview. Um, but we wanted to get a sense of, okay, if we know where our bike commuters are kind of living, where they live and where they travel right now, can we at least start aligning infrastructure recommendations with that? Right. So there's all kinds of anecdotal evidence being presented in meetings on campus about infrastructure. And we said, okay, can we collect data? And the survey-based approach is a little harder there because you can't, what are you going to do? Send people out in the field and count bikes? That's, that's an approach you can take. Um, but you don't really know the origins and destinations. So again, there's this need for understanding the spatial locations of these information that inform policy. Um, so that was very much in common with, the, with some of these other projects and is a very common approach in this field generally. And so we, what we turned to was an app that you probably have heard of called Strava. Uh, one of these apps, these, these uh, phone-based apps, although of course it can work on other platforms, uh, where if location services are enabled, you get kind of real-time tracking of where someone went. And in, in our case, we recruited commuters. We, we generated a study design that was approved by our on-campus institutional review board, IRB. But of course, you know, the IRB... It, apparatus here is still trying to figure out where the location data fits in because, as you know, 
you know, removing personally identifying information is important for your research. <laughs> and, and for survey-based work, we have a pretty good sense of how to do that. But for location-based data, that's a little bit trickier. And so uh, we had to make all sorts of uh, conversions and statements about privacy bubbles, these kinds of things that, that some of these apps enable. But what it did do was to show time of day and very precise information about where on our streets and where on our campuses people were traveling. And it did help lead to a couple of interesting decisions. Number one, signage on campus uh, started showing up based on where we started seeing volumes and where they interact with pedestrians. And interestingly, number two, we have, as I'm sure just about every campus does, this historic quad, which is trees and very grassy and very, everyone likes to be there. And there were some, some voices that said that they didn't want bicyclists on that and saw too many bicyclists. Well, what our study showed actually in the end is that nobody was really riding their bicycle on that at all. They were using other paths. So in a roundabout way, bicycles are still allowed somewhat because of that study. But this data-driven approach really started illuminating some patterns that we didn't have a really good sense of, of, of how strongly they were in place. We had anecdotal evidence and this sort of helped inform infrastructure. So that's kind of one of the benefits of these data is they can be used in that way. I'd like to backtrack just a little bit. For our listeners at home that may not know, you've referenced uh, GIS, which is Geographic Information Systems, and it uses presumably, right, this geolocation data. What what exactly is geolocation data and, and where does it come from? Is it just an app or, or how do you get this information? How do you get this data? So data, data that reside in geographic information system platforms, these digital mapping platforms, you know, if, if I ever do talk to somebody, family members, friends that haven't encountered it before, I say, well, computer mapping, which is obviously oversimplifying it by quite a bit. Um, but you're working with digital representations uh, of geographic data and, and these spatial data Right. One of the first things I say in my classes where I teach how to use and conduct analysis in these platforms is that, you know, what makes spatial data special uh, is that you've got some sort of phenomenon tied to X, Y coordinates, or in other words, a known location on the Earth's surface. It could be an observation, presence, absence of something, an event. It could be physical or abstract, but the thing that ties it all together is that there is something occurring on the Earth's surface that we can sort of represent with a a point, a line, a polygon, or as a surface. And uh, that data comes from a variety of sources. And so this, this sort of geolocation data that's often talked about now, this sort of real-time um, spatial data that we're collecting off of user devices, those kinds of things, that's just part of the landscape of all of the spatial data that are out there. And they come from a variety of sources, some from public sources, from, from federal sources, state, county, um, municipal entities that, that create and maintain and share for free uh, data to be used in GIS platforms. Sometimes they will give you access to raw data. Sometimes they will um, serve it out on, on web-based viewers where users can interact with the data but maybe can't get the data themselves to work in these platforms on their own devices. But it is, it's kind of a scattershot. You know, uh, they, 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 not every state, county, city does it the same and, and certainly not always align in, in terms of subject matter and, and, and what's in the data with maybe federal sources, but those are all out there. So th these sorts of real-time high resolution often referred to this, there was this, um, about 10 years ago, you started seeing it in classes at conferences, I guess maybe now 12 to 15 at this point, now they look at the calendar, time is flying, 
um, you started seeing this concept of big spatial data. And that's what we're talking about, location services, but also you know, uh, social media, web activity, uh, all these sort of platforms where you can glean XY data, right? And what I mean, again, XY data, I'm talking about the coordinate information tied somewhere on the Earth's surface in some way. That started opening up all kinds of new ways of knowing. And I, there were a few years where you couldn't go to a conference and you wouldn't see somebody talking about a phenomenon using Twitter data or, or Facebook data, right? Or any of these other sort of platforms where the event being measured uh, that gains information in new ways still contains that fundamental XY location, right? It could be a point, but another place that we collect information from um, and, or that some entities collect information from uh, can come from, you know, even your IP address, which is somewhat a little bit more generalized than maybe a location-based service on a phone, but you're getting some sense of where an event is occurring. So you can make some interesting, you can collect some interesting data, come to some interesting findings about how a geographic pattern and processes diffusing in real time and in space at all kinds of different scales. And so it is uh, really important. But the sources of data are just so vast. They can come from field observations, come from satellites. Now they're coming from drones. LIDAR sensors are now on, on the scene. But we still have, uh, one of the things that we, we often take for granted in this country is access to public GIS data. That we as, as, as users in the, in the academic world and even in industry, can, can go and just find. Um, and that's not necessarily true everywhere in, in, in use and download in certain ways. And so the, 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 the thing about that data, though, is that it's maintained by someone else, right? And so exactly what's in that data is, is a function of what they've decided to put in it, speaking about these public data sets. Scott, you just talked about, um, you know, where we're getting this information and you started to allude to how it's used, but I'm really curious... Who's using this geo, like, geolocation data and, and for what purposes? Geographic data has been used for, I think one of the most interesting things I like to do, in, especially when I'm teaching those classes, is I have this 80 to 100 person group shout out their majors. And you'd be surprised the variety that comes out. It's always this very eye-opening moment that you've got English, anthropology, civil engineering, wildlife management, forestry, and they're all in the same room. And, and that's because all of those fields are starting to integrate uh, geographic data into the, the way that they do things, right? And so it informs everything from city, regional, state, federal policy to the way that companies do business. Um, I worked in the private sector for three years as a GIS analyst in, in that particular company called Landis Core Aerial Information was in Phoenix. And at the time, what they were doing was collecting, you know, very high resolution aerial imagery and storing it and sharing it uh, to people in commercial real estate primarily, although there were other customers. And when attaching information about new developments, housing, commercial that were going on in the city at certain time intervals, you could get a sense of, you know, where you might want to locate a store, where you might want to target advertising, where customer bases may be. And you're starting to see that come in now, of course, with the data that's being collected on, on, on applications uh, from Google, right? I mean, Google, of course, collects a host of data uh, using location-based data to, to sort of sell advertisements, sell data, right? There's a huge market for that. Um, but in the transportation world, a, a big place that you see real-time location data now that I'm talking about is what I'm talking about here. The, the really important, powerful 
way that we use this data is, is simply this. People do not like waiting around for, for transportation at all, right? People want to be able to get from point A to point B in a very efficient manner. And in fact, uh, just about everybody on the planet now uh, that has internet connectivity has used that platform to figure out how to navigate from point A to point B, whatever that may be. But, you know, and that's one of the early cases of where we started using uh, these kinds of data in, in the transportation world. But now, you know, we're matching people to destinations, but now we're matching people to modes, right? And so location services and the associated apps are essential to matching people to destinations and modes. So bike share projects that are you know, propping up everywhere and scooter sharing, those kind of things, transit. Of course, you know, ride hailing services, Uber, Lyft rely on um, accurate real-time location data and you being willing to share where you are and they being willing to share where they are so that they can match uh, a driver to a rider and then to a destination. And of course, one of the big things that's sort of looming on the horizon in the transportation world is this, is this uh, envisioned future of driverless vehicles. And without location-based services and data, there's no way they're going to be able to operate on, on streets. Of course, there are many more hurdles than that to overcome. But um, that certainly is a key piece of this, is having reliable location data, um, not just for you know, operation of the vehicle, but again, matching people to cars. One of the things that's envisioned is, is, is this future in which people no longer own cars and they hail when they need them vehicles that do not have a physical driver, right? I mean, we're years away from seeing this in a widespread manner in, in cities. Um, but at any rate, those are kinds of ways that, that, that data are sort of thought about and, and, and envisioned in terms of application. Certainly, monetization of this data has happened in a number of sectors. Um, it's helped inform investment. Of course, I mentioned advertising. Retailers are tapping into this all the time. There was those well-publicized stories that came out in the New York Times, I think it was 2018, where people were tracking, were able to sort of match data that they found um, on this, this database to individuals, right? And you're not supposed to be able to do that. The data they're collected are supposed to be anonymized, right? The, the, the record that is, is attached to them carries a, you know, a unique uh, identifier that is not somebody's name, but you know, certainly somebody with a little bit of time uh, and, and being able to do some deductive reasoning would be able to figure out this is this person and this is where they're going. Um, and, and so the applications that we often think about when we talk about this data are, are generally positive, but there, are, of course, are drawbacks to that, too. So you mentioned that we can get geolocation data from, uh, like, the federal government or state governments, county, cities. Do governments necessarily use this data to make decisions, policy decisions or planning decisions? Certainly with geographic data. Uh, geographic data have been used to inform policy and make decisions for a while. And in fact, you know, one of the, the classes, I always include this GIS history thing early in my classes, and students are like, oh, man, really? I wanted to learn how to use this. And I always bring up the, the U.S. Census kind of was one of the first entities to figure out how to start partitioning space and, and, and visualizing that in the community. And as you know, that's really important for allocation of resources. And now that that sort of moves uh, into the digital world, that sort of the original schemes that they put together of how to store those data and then translate them into the digital environment, right? So if you could imagine, you know, a map of your neighborhood, right? You know, census tracts and then blocks and block groups of these sort of 
you, they're, they're visualized often as polygon units that contain sort of similar-ish neighborhoods uh, in a very simple way. And we can aggregate all kinds of data about that neighborhood. You know, what are the percentage of people there that have a bachelor's degree or that have some form of education? Or what's the age profile? What's the mix of the population there? What do they do for work? Where are employers? So anyway, when you have all of that data kind of on hand, you can use it to sort of prioritize interventions. Um, you know, this, this community could stand to gain access to some service or, you know, needs better roads or should be considered in school districts, zoning decisions. Of course, that is a very geographic problem. Uh, quite a few of my colleagues work on that. Gerrymandering, right? <laughs> Redistricting, those kinds of things. Geographers work on those sorts of issues using these data all the time from public sources. And so, of course, that's a very active area of interest in research as well. Municipal planning decisions, those kinds of things, city, city and regional plans, those all come together with, with geographic data as well. But, you know, in terms of this sort of live, real-time, you know, geographic data that we're collecting with our mobile apps and devices and those kinds of things, I think entities are still trying to figure that out. I mean, it's one of the things that's interesting. If you go to gps.gov, right, one of the very first things, and this is, all, this is always striking to show to students, what is, I got the wording right in front of me. Several U.S. states and non-U.S. jurisdictions have enacted laws establishing personal location privacy rights. However, current U.S. statute at the federal level does not provide clear protection of geolocation information. I know privacy kind of came later, but we're, we're very much still trying to grapple with what we do with this. And it's, it's an open question in, in terms of how governments uh, can use it. Certainly, uh, in a very simple applied case, I, I know that some of my efforts here in, in the city of Reno have involved trying to understand where uh, we had a bike share program here called Lime Bike. I'm sure you've heard of it. <laughs> that was uh, that was doing a pilot for a while. And, and we some, some of us that were working with folks in the city uh, got access to uh, a very anonymized data set of, of origins and destinations of travel to sort of see, okay, where within our city were people taking these bikes? Uh, we could infer some things about where they were traveling, although, you know, there are all kinds of ways that that carries uncertainty. But you do get a sense of, um, you know, with, with taxis, uh, with ride-hailing services, Uber and Lyft, those kind of things. If you can collect that information and have access to it, you have a sense of where these sorts of travelers are moving in your city, which can, again, maybe inform infrastructure decisions. So, obviously, I'm speaking from the transportation perspective here, because that's to do but there are other applications as well but in the end you're having if you are a government agency you're probably having to sort of talk to some of these companies about what are the implications of sharing this data what do we have access to what can we say about it and what would you be willing to share it and, and cities are still trying to negotiate that and, and states are trying to negotiate that um, but it is sort of an, an area that's still being talked about a lot and so these conversations are ongoing that's i mean it's intriguing being someone that um, kind of sits in a space where I use uh, geographic data, but I don't, I, no, I don't study kind of how it's gathered um, and all of those pieces. So for me, I, I, it's a really great opportunity to talk to you about it. From your perspective, what are some of the benefits of using geolocation data as opposed to other types of data? Right. That uh, what does it offer to us that kind of other information might be missing? Yeah, and I think the quick answer is time, 
<laughs> uh, right? So it, 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 I don't know. Am I allowed to ask the question too? Yeah. Yeah, Ashley, you, you mentioned um, you, you use geographic data. Can you tell me a little bit about what, what that means? I mean, certainly in the policy world, it's there's an awful lot of overlap, but what kinds of geographic data do you have you interacted with? In my work, I, my, my PhD is in public affairs and I have a specialization in community development. So a lot of it is neighborhood-based. Uh, you know, everything from thinking about mapping historic maps, how locations have changed and shifted, demographic changes within neighborhoods, as well as even where organizations with power reside and where they're making decisions, right? And kind of sometimes the disconnect between where the organization is and how their decisions are influencing other places. So kind of big picture, kind of pulling all sorts of different areas, I suppose. So, I mean, with, with geographic data that, that are often sort of used, in, and I use them frequently uh, for my for my research and teaching, those, those sort of public, uh, publicly available data sets that, that, that you're referencing and, and maybe some others. Um, they are the, the benefits of those kinds of data sets is that they have been vetted. Um, there have been discussions about what is shared, uh, what is collected, what, and oftentimes why it should be collected. And so what you're seeing is sort of the end product of a lot of people thinking critically through what should be stored, what should be shared, and what shape should it take, right? And the scale at which we should present it, right? Should we aggregate this? And if so, at what, at, you know, what sort of detail? So there's a lot of careful consideration of that. But that takes time. And it also means that the scale at which you're working has been decided by somebody else, a group of somebody else's. When you have access to these kinds of data, these sort of real-time location service-enabled data, um, it is possible that you get a, a very fine... Well, you're getting access to, to points happening in, in real time at very high resolutions. And sure, you could take those and then aggregate them up to those other sorts of units I was referencing earlier, which you don't have to, right? So the classic example, right, if I were to download a census track polygon, this sort of shape of my neighborhood, um, if I were to query information about it, that whole neighborhood would sort of flash or show up on the map. And, and it would look like this entire area kind of has this similar characteristic. We know intuitively that's not true, but that's the way it's shared. But with these kind of real-time data, that kind of goes by the wayside a little bit in that there aren't maybe necessarily discussions about what, what should get shared or collected, except for what happens maybe with that company or whoever's in the boardroom or whoever's in those meetings. But... The, the, the decision process is a little bit different about what gets collected and why and, and how it gets shared, if it gets shared at all, right? I mean, researchers were clamoring for a while about access to Uber and Lyft data, and it, it took a lot of negotiation to get it. And even then, it's a sample and it's a modification of what, 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 is what that company has in, in full. Same with Limebike, those kinds of things. But to, to answer your question, you, you get real-time snapshots in very high spatial resolutions. Uh, of data that you can pull, right? I mean, even when events are happening, we can do this with Twitter data. And that sort of shows how these concepts and, and thoughts are sort of moving through a population in space and time. And that's really powerful. But again, in that case, you know, maybe the XY data, the geographic data hasn't always been vetted, right? There can be uncertainties about what's being shown. And so uh, map users should be a little bit aware of that as they're looking at data like so space and time are the big things that you can get 
higher detail and resolution on. Scott, that brings me to my next question, which is, of course, I think what's on everybody's mind, are what are the drawbacks to using this geolocation data? I mean, so it sounds like this data is being collected, right? If you have any sort of phone, there, this data is being collected on you and your movements, regardless of, um, you know, whether or not you know it and what of that information you've decided as an individual to share. Um, that seems, I think, to, to some people like, I, I don't know. I can I can I can envision people going. Well, good. I'm glad Facebook knows where I am. They can suggest good things for me to go by. You know, I don't know. But I can also envision people going. Well, gosh, I really didn't want you know Mark Zuckerberg to have this information on that I just stopped in at you know Lowe's and then went to the salon afterwards. Whatever, whatever it is that you do. So, what are the drawbacks to this? Great question, right? You know, I think again, I was sort of. I always kind of like to frame these answers back to when students start first interacting with this data, because I think it's a really good snapshot of how people start to think about this stuff before they really dive in. Um, so what I mean is students always want the most accurate information, um, the most comprehensive information, they want it now, right? That's, it's not an unreasonable thing to, to ask for, but the implications of that can, can get dicey, right? And I think that's sort of what you're getting at, right? And then this sort of surveillance state uh, concern um, it, it is something that a lot of my colleagues, there are a lot of, of folks that I work with that, that really study this issue entirely, including a colleague here at, at UNR as well. Um, but these sorts of concerns about if you have more instruments in the community that are collecting data, not just your phone, but certain things that are in the built environment, you know, cameras, you know, this, this idea of, of LIDAR sensors and cameras to help sort of street operations move and to set the stage for self-driving cars, those kind of things mean there are more instruments collecting data in real time in our communities. And so that means that the kinds of activities that we think, you know, are information that are known to us or if we choose to share it, that's not entirely becoming true anymore. And so it is worth saying that, that data are collected about, you know, what you're doing out there in the world, not just if you have your location services, you know, turned on, right? I mean, certainly that's a very tangible example. If, if you are out and you turn your phone on and you turn location services on, Google gives you that sort of page that says, hey, are you agreeing to share your data? And you say, yeah, sure. I need to get to the store. I need to get to my friend's house and, you know, wherever it is. But it, it's more than that, right? Again, if you web search history, you, you, you're typing something in, your IP address is recorded, and there's some information generally about where you are. There are all kinds of other ways that, that information is being passed from devices or that, that you interact with um, to other parties. And so then, you know, sometimes this data gets sold or can be sold and monetized, uh, and, and, and people use that for all kinds of purposes. Again, advertisement is, is a big one. Decisions about sort of how to tailor messaging to certain people, right? I mean, if you go to Google's page and look at, you know, how Google uses location information, they flat out tell you, if you are looking for cafes in Paris, that tells us something about who you are and what you're doing. And, it, and that brings up an interesting point. Um, there have been people that have been pressed on this that work for these companies that say, hey, look, why do you think you get that for free, uh, you user? You should know. Right? <laughs> why, why would you reasonably think that if, if you're entering this information, it's free, that, that that's, that's just where it ends? Which is, you know, <laughs> there's some questions to that sort of worldview that, that, that I think are, are worth asking. Um, 
But, you know, one thing that was interesting is, is now that people are becoming more and more aware that these data are being used and sold and, and sent elsewhere that might contain information about your activity and personally identifying information that you're not comfortable getting out there in the community. Um, there have been pieces of legislation that have tried to go forward to sort of address this. Um, and the, the Geolocation Privacy and Surveillance Act is one of them. Um, and this was introduced in 2017 um, by Rep Representative Ferentpold out of Texas, I think, uh, the Republican. And um, that didn't go anywhere. Um, in, in February 2017, before that, there was um, Wyden out of Oregon, Chavez out of Utah, and Conyers out of Michigan that tried to introduce legislation about, uh, about this. And I think the, the upshot was we're trying to make everybody happy. This bill would sort of allow government agencies to um, be able to get a probable cause warrant to obtain information in case they needed it, but consumers wouldn't. Consumers would have to sign off on, okay, companies, you're allowed to use this information. Um, then that's been kind of a sticking point: is that geographical tracking data, right? We we that's getting disclosed all the time. But this act would have prohibited businesses from from disclosing geographical tracking data about its customers to others without their permission. And that hasn't gone anywhere. Um, and of course, you guys probably know about the case that, that sort of set the stage for all of this in 2012, you know, the U.S. versus Jones, uh, where the Supreme Court sort of ruled about uh, the attachment of a GPS tracking device, whether that was constitutional or not. The ruling was, of course, that, all right, that falls under the Fourth Amendment. But they never decided whether that, in fact, uh, was an unreasonable search or not. And so that's still an open question um, that, that, we're, that we're working through. And, and California, which should surprise nobody, is starting to pass legislation about some of this. And, you know, one of the key pieces of this will be this informed, this two-way informed consent about information, right? That, 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 you ha that businesses have to provide a way for you to opt in to sharing services. I think that's kind of the goal. A lot of agreements right now is, well, you can opt out, but if you don't even know you've opted in the first place, not all consumers are going to be able to do that. And that's kind of, so I think that's kind of the, 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 the place that where I think some of these discussions are happening next. But some of the concerns, yeah, are about revealing information that you don't want to be revealed and, and haven't been sold under the guise of, you know, while we're creating better, better advertisement for you. Maybe that's true, but others could get hold of that and sort of track you and what you're doing. And of course, that opens up a whole host of other safety concerns, which are valid, right? It's it's not hard to sort of, un with somebody with enough technical computational chops would be able to sort of figure out where you are during times of day, right? When your house is unattended, those kinds of things systematically. These sound like big brother kind of scary things, but it wouldn't really take a lot of work to do that for somebody with, with the proper motivation. And so... I think this is where the discussions really need to happen. We've got private actors or public-private partnerships collecting these data. We as, as a nation, and this is obviously difficult right now, <laughs> and this is, this is more your world than mine, but it's easy for me to pass the buck here and say, okay, what are we going to do about this? What constitutes reasonable data that we all have access to for, for good purposes? Can we mitigate the, the drawbacks, these invasions of privacy and potential safety risks that, that come with sort of sharing this data, which is, yes, convenient, no question about it, in some ways, but there are all kinds of other sorts of things that we didn't really think about early on, or at least hard enough about, regarding how they're used. 
I mean, and we're, we're doing this interview during stay-at-home orders here in Ohio. It's uh, COVID-19 and the coronavirus. And so people are talking about geolocation again, and these controversies and thinking about these trade-offs are really relevant again in the news and um, people are having these conversations. Um, from your perspective, um, we know that some countries have, have adopted geolocation uh, data in their fight against coronavirus. Can you explain how geolocation data might be useful to public health officials to help us trace uh, the spread of the disease? Well, I'm going to preface this by saying I'm not a spatial epidemiologist. So one of the big interventions that's constantly being mentioned as a requisite for getting, quote, back to real life, whatever that means anymore, is this idea of contact tracing. And in order to do that, you need to know at very fine spatial and temporal resolution where somebody was. So if you know when they contracted the virus, well, if you know when they started exhibiting symptoms and can reasonably assume that, you know, this person is, is a, either has tested positive or in the case of what's happening in the U.S. right now, likely has it, but, you know, hasn't been able to confirm it. But, it, but at any rate, if you know something about the travel activity, uh, the activity space of that person, where they have moved around for a couple of weeks, that becomes really vital information to do a number of things. Number one, you as a public health official could visit the places that this person has visited, contact the people that worked there at the time or that could reasonably have been exposed to the virus on surfaces, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, and then, of course, then the tree gets much more complicated from there, right? Because every one of those people then went around other people and went to other places, and but at least helps you sort of target where this occurred. Um, and so with access to real-time location data of the population, it does help you target the interventions, get people to, to quarantine, to stay at home, to, to, to mitigate their interaction with public spaces and other people. And, and, and of course, South Korea, I imagine, is the case you're, you're referencing, is the, the, the one that really aggressively implemented this policy. They're not alone, but they're sort of the held up right now as the, as the champion of this, of this technique. And yeah, that, the, the contact tracing and, and, and then subsequent uh, stay-at-home quarantine, isolation orders, whatever you want to call them, that could be sort of set as a, as a, as a, as a fence, and I'm not using the term geofence here, but uh, around those people, although you could, of course, do that once, once you kind of saw there was a common geographic extent of travel. But being able to isolate where they were and who was there at those times, that could absolutely be enabled by access to location data. And so I would imagine a public health official would, would be absolutely wanting to get a hold of that data for that purpose. So now we have talked about privacy issues with just the regular geolocation data that we get where we've got right these private entities so apple or google or facebook or whatever it is collecting this information on us um and so i would have to imagine that if you're using this data in a public health way that the privacy issues are even amplified um I mean, how is the, is it feasible even for us to think that there's a way to kind of uh, react to that or respond to that or, or, or correct this privacy issue that I think is a really relevant issue? That's a, that's a million dollar question. I mean, it's interesting, right? We live in a society where we really value, at least nominally, our individual liberties and, and choices and those kinds of things, right? Um, I would be able to do what I want when I want. Don't let Big Brother tell me what to do otherwise. It's kind of a common 
way that Americans sort of view that, right? There's this immediate sort of pushback against um, surveillance and those kind of things. But at the same time, we've got this sort of surveillance happening. It's just not necessarily happening entirely from government actors. And it's sort of an interesting thing when you think about it, because we're, we're allowing these, these private actors to have access to this information. It doesn't, you know, some people are uncomfortable with it, but you don't really see these sort of widespread uprisings to, to this. Um, but I imagine if you had any sort of government actor or agency in any kind of spatial scale saying, hey, listen, we are going to tap into location data, whether you like it or not, to sort of monitor movement right now in the, in the middle of this virus so that we can mitigate it. I think, you know, I, I'm not expert in, in, in this area, but I just do not see the scenario where the American public says, okay, I think that this is, it's a, but it's a great question because you, you hit it right on the head. If, if public health agencies had access to this information, that could really help inform interventions. It, you know, if slash when a vaccine comes along or some sort of ability to, to mitigate symptoms or to eliminate them entirely, Again, that's where location data could come in handy because you could prioritize who gets it, right? Based on, you know, not just known illnesses, but where they are and who they've likely interacted with, right? And so there are all kinds of ways that this data can really help sort of get us through this crisis, at least theoretically. But what that means is that we've got to sit down and come up with a framework for what gets collected, who stores it, What's going to be part of that storage? And, and in some ways, it, it might be worth doing sort of what we did uh, or what certain agencies did with the geographic data that we've all come to know and love, right? You know, what gets shared? What gets collected? How do we disseminate it? What is a reasonable time interval at which we want to collect data? Uh, some, some entities, some companies, some apps have the ability to set what's called a privacy button. Strava is the, the example I used earlier, the fitness app. Um, you know, of course, the way that works is you track and share your activities, running, cycling, whatever it is. But you can set these privacy bubbles around, you know, if you type in addresses, then locations will not be shared within a certain area. So you could do that with homes. But again, you can largely infer whereabouts someone will live because I think it's like a quarter mile. And it, it, at least that's kind of what what's said about it uh, away from a home. So that can mitigate it to some extent is to, to sort of sit down and say, OK, what do we really need to collect? Like at, at what detail, at what, at what detail in space and time do we really need this information? So I think that's step one. Uh, you're going to need fairly fine resolution on both of those things though, for interventions when it comes to COVID-19, uh, especially when it comes to isolating people or disseminating a vaccine, uh, should one become available. And, and, and so I, I think that is a, a tricky conversation. And, and, and we really, you know, from, from my perspective, have not been able to come to any sort of coming to sort of federal agreements about geographic information and, and data and formats and standards has been a really rough road. I mean, e even in certain states, they don't even use the same, sometimes certain counties don't even use the same coordinate system. And there are all kinds of reasons for that. Um, legacy, accuracy, familiarity, path dependency, coordination with other partners, those kind of things. But you know, in some ways, it blows students' minds sometimes when you tell them, they're like, okay, it is not reasonable to go to every county's website in the U.S. and find the same data in the same format, which is kind of frustrating, but also you can kind of understand why, right? There are, there are two sides to that. 
And so I, I think coming up at least with some standards uh, in terms of data and practices would have to be important. But honestly, that would require input from the from the epidemiology public health community as well. And I don't feel qualified to sort of weigh out on what they would want. Uh, but, you know, the, the, those sorts of things, uh, common formats, common shared decisions about, you know, representation in space and time, I think would be would be pretty essential conversations to have right now. I don't know how you decouple the politically charged atmosphere we have right now from that conversation. But I think that's one of those, you know, multi-stakeholder agreements, though, that, that would be really worth coming around. There are so many challenges with trying to figure out how to do this and to do it well and to think about privacy issues, but also public health. Are there any other reasonable alternatives to geolocation data, um, especially as we're thinking about, you know, pub- I know this is not your primary area, but public health purposes? That's a great question. I mean, you know, there are all kinds of ways. Again, I think it's worth returning to how do you collect data and how is geographic information, digital, digitally geographically referenced uh, information collected? It can be collected from, from something as simple as surveys, right? I mean, there's no reason you can't go out and continue with a paper survey and eventually translate information you found into a GIS. You can do that. Um, it's cumbersome, it's time consuming, and it's you know, frankly, old school at this point, but it can work. You, you can collect and share geographic data in all kinds of other ways, but nothing will give you the real-time uh, information that these location services enable. There's just, there's really no suitable alternative. I mean, you, you could maybe set up a database where you would have people sort of volunteer based on where they've lived. Hey, here's either my address or approximate address. Um, maybe you could set up some sort of web map where people could drag an icon over a you know, near street intersection. And, and side note, that's how typically we collect information in our research efforts. Um, so it, it can be done, but that requires people participating. And as you know, that's that's tricky. And, and so maybe you could say, all right, uh, we would like to get this link out to our community. Please tell us you know, if you've got symptoms, where you've traveled in the past few days, but, you know, memory and and travel diaries have shown that that's got imperfections as well. So there are alternatives. It's just, there's nothing that's going to get you that level of accuracy that, that we really can use better than location data. So I think, you know, look, we're, we're at a point right now where we really need to be having conversations about what we do with this data for all kinds of ethical and privacy issues. Anyway, maybe this is the thing that forces us to sit down and say, okay, what are the procedures going to be? Why is there not a federal framework for you know exactly what happens with all of this data? And of course, it's being left to, to states and local agencies to come up with that. And we've seen that with the response to COVID nineteen, the states, and, and there are good reasons for that in some cases. But you know, having some sort of federal guidelines or at least some framework, I think, would be a good thing to have right now. Absolutely. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us, Dr. Kelly. It was so intriguing. Um, I, I've learned so much. So we appreciate you taking this time and, uh, and, and helping us better understand geolocation data and the, the possible uses, um, drawbacks, benefits of GIS uh, and, and your work in transportation, but also the possible implications for kind of other areas as well. Yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure. And, and of course, there are geographers and, and those working with geographers that use these data for all kinds of purposes. It's frankly amazing to learn, you know, kind of how people are, are, are using these data. Are you guys, are the two of you getting involved with um, COVID-19 response, offering some sort of 
broad recommendations, maybe even beyond um, just location services. Um, is that sort of something that's, that you guys are actually working on at the moment? I mean, so I don't know that if we are offering broad recommendations so much as we know that our community members are interested in a number of different topics um, and that there are important things for them to think through that maybe they haven't had an opportunity to do it or somebody with a certain level of expertise to kind of help them start to think of um, some of the implications for important topics that we're all talking about right now. So, but I, inevitably everybody that we've spoken to has some sort of like wish or push or, or policy thing that they would really, um, Maybe not necessarily say you have to do this, but say, well, you know, you should at least think about this <laughs> or maybe consider this. I know. I, I don't envy. It's so easy in, in, in our sort of form of writing of like, hey, these, these findings can inform policy. But we often just sort of leave that at your doorstep. <laughs> not exactly fair. Um, and, and it's messy. Um, and it's, I mean, Ohio's governor has, doesn't he have among the highest approval ratings of I think that he surprised everybody and done a, a pretty um, good job of meeting a lot of uh, the expectations that people had in terms of good governance during this time. Now, we'll see if that changes with him opening up um, the state. In many ways, I think it's too soon. Um, well, no, in all the ways, I think it's too soon. But I know that, he, that he's had a lot of demonstrators and a lot of pushback lately. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know, frankly, that he had a choice. And in, in a way, I think he's kind of hoping that the people will stand up and say, well, go ahead and reopen it, but I'm staying inside. <laughs> I know we're kind of getting off topic here, but this was a conversation we were just having in our faculty meeting today. Like, um, I don't know exactly the, the geographic dispersion of Kent State students, but here at Nevada, we were talking about the fact that about a quarter of our students live in Clark County, Las Vegas. Right. And so they can they can travel seven hours away from home, but still be in state. I mean, Nevada is ridiculous in terms of its geographic dispersion. And then we've got a, a good cohort of students that, that come from Northern California, the Bay Area. And that geographic dispersion of, of students and faculty, frankly, and grad students is going to be if that's has to weigh into this, this decision of, OK, what do we do? Because, as you know, these campuses are agglomerations of people coming from everywhere. And, and, and I think, you know, campuses might be one of those places where we start to see tracking maybe get some traction for that reason. You've got people sort of clustering in one area. I'm sure you've seen, you know, your hallways are sure like this, too. There's like 100 students outside waiting to get into the classroom. The day before the shutdown, people were trying to get in midterms. And in our hallway was jam-packed, 150 students, inches between them at best. You know, this is March 13th, and I was like, what are we doing? <laughs> All it takes is one of those people to have it right now, and game over. Oh, where there was the one guy at the, that hit a bunch of nightclubs in Taiwan, wasn't it? That infected 54 people. I think it's up to 110 now. What, from one person? And here we are thinking we're going to restart universities, and it'll all be okay. Yeah, and I think, you know, understanding where our students live not just in our communities, but where they live, you know, where, where their homes are, where they've been during the shelter and place order. I don't know, are, are your students mostly from Ohio or are they coming from all over the region? We have a pretty big range. And I, I mean, just even from uh, the students that I was working with this semester, I mean, I had students all over the Midwest and East Coast. We had students in Washington, D.C. that 
had experienced spring break. So they left for spring break, went back and then had to move out. So there was all sorts of movement during that, that time frame. I know. And in tracing these movements and, and, and the interactions that people have had with places. We have a, a campus affiliation in Florence. So we had a huge amount of students in Florence when their outbreak hit and they all came back. Yeah, exactly. And, and when, when these waves come again in the fall and they will, you know, conference travel, I assume is probably off the table for just about everybody for a while. Business travel, of course, we've seen is taking a hit, but yeah, I mean, at this stage, if we don't have detailed information on where people have gone and when, it's going to be really hard. All we're going to be doing is reacting. Despite the drive, there are many uh, issues and drawbacks with location data. Even when we talk about universities, it's going to be so important that we have some sort of handle on this. Um, but what better institutions, frankly, to, to sort of help start leading this discussion about, okay, it's going to be vital to our operations and our students' health and our faculty's health and our staff's health and that of our community. What can we recommend? And, and, and I do think some, in, you know, some, some multiple multi-stakeholder discussions about how we collect the data and, and, and you know, who gets access to it will, will be important. And I think that's something that the universities are well positioned to either lead or be part of. And so um, it would be interesting to see which ones are actively doing that. I know, I, I don't really know of, of any efforts outside of a few faculty here and there that are trying to trace this. Yeah. So, I, so I think it's curious because there, I was reading that there are restaurants in Arizona who are um, having, they're taking like lists of, of people that come in, which, you know, the, there is some pushback to that. And I find it humorous because when you make a reservation, you tell them your name and phone number, but now you don't want to tell them your name and phone number. Exactly. <laughs> so, so they seem to be trying to figure it out that way by keeping like lists that are kept where, how is this secure and how is this, you know, ensured that it's privacy is, you know, that, so that doesn't make any sense to me that, that that seems to be okay. But having, you know, geolocation data on you, uh, at, at least government knowing it, is somehow um, dangerous. I, I don't know if universities would fall into that, you know, lump of dangerous government or if it would fall under, you know, the, the housing of an organization I'm choosing to do business with. Correct. And, and I think that's why having some really directed, targeted, you know, fourth, and that's the thing is like having some honest, forthright public conversations about this, I think is, this is the time to do that. You know, maybe a solution you come up with is people that are, you know, symptomatic or likely to be symptomatic. Maybe there is a policy where we say, okay, for two weeks, your location services will be activated. Maybe that's, maybe that's something we try. Of course there, I can, I can already hear the pushback, right. For, for something like that. But it might be one of those sort of, okay, not everybody does it, but if you follow these criteria, but then of course the conversation happens, all right, what counts as symptomatic? How do we determine that? Those kinds of things. But, but I think sort of those conversations are, are going to be good ones to have. And I just don't really see any entity dealing with that. And some of that is because governors and county and city officials right now are trying to hang on, you know, for dear life for all kinds of things. And this is happening around the world. Right. There's, there, in, in modern times, in, in, in our history, we haven't seen an event like this. There aren't any silver linings. But if we come out of this with some sort of discussion 
about how we collect this data, uh, what is public record, what are the kinds of things that, that consumers or individuals can opt into and what can they opt out of and what's fair. I think, you know, it sounds easy, but I think it's obviously a hard conversation, but it's one we need to have. There are attendance apps that faculty, I mean, I've never used any of them, um, but, you know, been reading about them in terms of you can determine whether or not someone was in your class based on their geolocation in your building. And if they were gone, you know, you can see where they were. Like, like that's all sorts of wild to me. <laughs> so the technology exists, it's whether or not we want to use it and for what purpose. Yeah. I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we, and we've had it about other things, right? So we know that our First Amendment right, you know, to freedom of speech is not unlimited, right? I can't outfire in a crowded movie theater for public safety concerns. So we've taken these steps and had these conversations. When it comes to concerns of public safety, we can have it again. And it sounds like there would be a lot uh, more benefit to having that conversation than just the aspect of public safety that, in fact, there were privacy concerns anyway. Yeah. I know there's a lot to talk about and thankfully there's a, this is a multidisciplinary problem and these are the kind of uh, conversations that are helpful. Absolutely. That's why we wanted you on. So thank you for coming. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan and my co-host is Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Gold Knox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio and supported by the American Political Science Association. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org.